Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. I'm very glad to introduce our guest today. I'm here with Sharath Chandra Raparthi, uh, who is an AI resident at FAIR at Meta and he did his master's at Mila. Welcome to the show, Sharat. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm excited for this. We met on Twitter, and uh, I saw your, your work, uh, your recent paper, which I find very fascinating. I'm excited to talk about today. This is called a Generalization to New Sequential Decision-Making Tasks with In-Context Learning. That's first author yourself uh, at all. And um, so can you tell us, tell, tell our audience, what is the general idea here um, and what are you trying to do and, and how does it work? And let's, let's do something new uh, today. Let's try to do this description for a lay audience. We all are familiar with like large language models, uh, thanks to like ChatGPT, uh, Llama, and other uh, models which are you know, kind of taking over uh, over the past one, two years. Uh, so the example is very easy, right? I mean, if you have ever played with LLM, LLMs, uh, they are like very good instruction followers in the sense that if we ask it to, let's say, solve uh, a math task by saying, okay, here's a math task, you need to add two numbers. I'm gonna give you some examples on how to do that. And and now it's your turn to answer that question, answer the new question that uh, I'm gonna ask you. For example, uh, I can say, okay, one plus one is equals to two, two plus two equal to four, what is four plus three? And and the LLM is very good at this. Uh, it kind of understands that, oh, I have to do a math task now, and uh, it is addition of two numbers. Um, I've, I'm given like some, some examples in the context, and I just have to like add the last two numbers, uh, uh, and it will answer, uh, you know, four plus three as seven, for example. So uh, this this ability of, you know, learning a new task from very few few examples. Uh, like people call this like a uh, few shot learning or, or a more technical term for this is like in-context learning. And, uh, and LLMs are pretty good at this, right? Uh, and the motivation of this paper is exactly the same, how you can adapt to new tasks, but the setting is different uh, in the sense that uh, the setting we are considering is a sequential decision-making setting where you you want to like solve, let's say, a reinforcement learning task, uh, for example, Atari. So traditionally, reinforcement learning, uh, which would be applied to Atari or AntMaze or these types of tasks, takes a huge amount of data before yeah. it, it, it gets anywhere. Is that, is that, so yeah. is that the difference here, that you're able to be very sample efficient? Yes. Yes, uh, that's that's a uh, that's a good point. So traditionally, reinforcement learning agents, as you mentioned, they take a lot of time to train, uh, but but they also test on the same training environment. Uh, even though you have trained uh, for so long, it it can't adapt to a new MDP, for example. Uh, and this is like one of the drawbacks. Uh, uh, of like traditional RL, and in this paper we want to like just go uh, a bit more further and and ask the model to like generalize to 
completely unseen task. Uh, and by that, what I mean is basically, uh, so if you, if you take this uh, benchmark, which is called Progen, it's by OpenAI, uh, it has like uh, 16 diverse uh, environments. Uh, what we do is we kind of train on, let's say, 12 environments, and we want to test on the four unseen environments. And then these these environments are like completely different uh, from the perspective of the observations, the action distribution, the reward distribution, and also the transition dynamics. So it's like a completely OOD kind of generalization. Uh, and LLMs are pretty good at this, if you take the example of again, going back to language models, they are kind of good at, you know, adapting to this like unseen tasks, uh, which are, which could be out of distribution. Uh, and the way they are doing the, doing it is basically by in-context learning. So we want to do the same thing for reinforcement learning setup. Uh, and we want to adapt to the same challenging out of distribution tasks. Is it true that uh, each environment in Progen itself is full of randomized yeah. settings so that you don't play the same exact level each time? But even then, there's different, completely different environments. And what you're saying is it's not just that you are mastering one, you know, single Progen environments with the randomization yeah. that they have, but also being able to go to a brand new game. Yeah. And and what and so what are you what are you providing to the agent to help it perform in the brand new game? You're giving a few examples, like how much data is it getting? Yeah, uh, honestly, it just gets, uh, I think in the paper, uh, the number of demonstrations that we use is basically, we can we can count that. Uh, I think the max is seven for mini hack environments, uh, uh, mini hack environment experiments that we did in the paper. And for Progen, we just give four demonstrations. So this is four complete trajectories of an expert doing their best to try to play the game. Is that what it is? It could be complete or it could not be complete. Uh, because like we are limited by the context length and transformer models. So we just like accommodate as much as we can in the context. And then we we kind of roll out uh, from there. And so how, like when I think of a, even one frame in Atari, it's quite a bit of data. So like, is this context yeah. window very large? How how much can you stuff in there? How It seems yeah. like a lot larger than the context window for an LLM, for example, because it's just small tokens. Yeah, that's true. So, so, so one thing we did is we treat every image uh, as like one token, instead of like uh, you know every uh, like a vision transformer kind of patches the images and treat treats the patches as tokens. We don't do that, uh, and uh, because of that, we kind of save some you know space in the memory, uh, in the context memory. Uh, so, in terms of number of tokens that we use in the paper, it's around like 2048, 2048 uh, tokens. That's the max uh, number of tokens that we use. Okay, now looking uh, looking back at at some related work, uh, you know, we had uh, Arvind Srinivas, and now yeah. Perplexity, back in episode 34 with his work on Decision Transformer and yeah. with, Lil with Lily Chen et al. And, and of course, they were using a transformer for sequential decision-making, but this is really, their, theirs is really framed as supervised learning. And yeah. so I, don't, I think they weren't really doing this in-context thing. And so we saw, you know, multi-game decision transformer, and then we saw Gato yeah. and these other yeah. things that were, there was something in common there. But I think what you're doing is, is, is so different because you're learning 
even though you're using transformer for RL this here, you, the, it's the focus is the in context. Is this the first time that's been done? Uh, I would say it's not the first time it's been done uh, because like the notion of in-context learning for transformers is is there for a while. But in reinforcement learning, I think there was a concurrent work when, when we kind of uh, were publishing our paper. It, it is called algorithmic distillation. Uh, but but they don't like test on completely out of distribution tasks that we'd consider in the setting. Uh, and there is also one more paper from DeepMind around the same time. Uh, it's called Adaptive Agents, uh, ADA, I guess. Uh, and they do the same in-context learning stuff, but they do like online reinforcement learning with transformers, uh, and we don't do online reinforcement learning. Uh, so those are there are like some differences uh, between the concurrent works which came around the same time we were doing this re doing this research. Uh, uh, but but yeah, I think like it's it's still not enough. I think there is definitely more to do here. And and your paper mentions that there's certain properties you want in the data to make this work. Um, yeah. Can you help us understand uh, what is what is it that you found in terms of what kind of data is needed to make this actually work? Language as a data modality is very interesting. Uh, I'm just like going back to the LLMs and why in-context learning works for LLMs. Uh, language has like uh, very nice data distribution properties. Uh, which includes uh, Ziffian nature, like when you plot the the, the word frequencies uh, of like a bunch of documents, uh, it follows like a Ziffian distribution. Uh, uh, and and the second second property is basically you know uh, it has this notion of burstiness uh, in the data, and by that what I mean is if you take an example of let's say the following sentence. Uh, the sentence is basically as a chef uh, uh, seasoned, sorry, as the chef seasoned uh, the soup, the aroma of herbs and spices fill the kitchen. If you consider this sentence, uh, you kind of like see that like most of the words like chef, seasoned, soup, aroma, herbs, kitchen, etc, etc, are kind of like closely associated with the topic of you know, preparation of uh, a meal uh, or a soup in this case, right? So you can imagine like these words are kind of like clustered uh, in the space and and uh, they are like bursty along the temporal axis. And uh, because like similar tokens are kind of like together uh, 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 in the along the temporal axis, it is like kind of crucial, uh, it is like one of the crucial factors why in context learning, you know, works for 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 transformers when the when the modality is like language, uh, and, and because of these two like properties, there was a paper by Stephanie uh, Chan from DeepMind, uh, and it basically says that these two are like quite crucial for in context learning to emerge during the training, uh, and and we want to take. Uh, like when we when we read when we read this paper, we were like, "Oh my God, this is like really cool," and we want to see whether we can like kind of apply these distribution properties for decision making settings, and see whether if we can get like in context learning emergence, just like language. So we take the notion of burstiness, 
which basically means that you want similar uh you you want the episodes from the similar similar levels in case of like progen in the context uh uh and that basically helps the model whenever it is like doing like uh, attention it kind of like helps the model to like look back and identify that oh there is a similar example in the context i can maybe uh learn how to solve you know the current task by looking back into the context and you know kind of solve it uh, like that and this kind of forces the model to develop this in context uh, in context uh, learning ability during the training and once we get this during the training we can just like expect that it it also works during the test environment can can you say more about burstiness because it it seemed like a very uh, important feature of the the part of the recipe to make this work so you're saying bursty of course we know burstiness in general daily use but uh here i think we're we're talking you're talking about um is it right the density of of samples from the same trajectory needs to be yeah. higher is that what you're saying and that's in content not in the training data but in the in the context window yes yes uh, exactly so uh transformer takes a sequence uh, as an input uh right so so you want to make sure that some tokens in that sequence are kind of clustered together in if you kind of plot them in in some space um and and uh, that is basically uh, called burstiness and in terms of like our work we call this uh, we, we kind of introduce this notion of trajectory burstiness which basically means that um uh, within the sequence if we stack like multiple trajectories uh together uh they should be bursty in the sense that there are there should be similar trajectories in the context some kind of minimum yeah. density of the related stuff so we have there's something to latch on to maybe yeah exactly what kind of generalization do you observe here like is it and, and maybe some of this is qualitative like is it learning the idea of playing a game is it learning the idea mm-hmm. of of there's some main character that has to be protected or what do you think is being generalized here or is it really is it really getting most of it from the context itself yeah that that's a that's a very good question uh that's something we haven't analyzed in in the in terms of what kind of skill that is uh that the model is learning during the training but uh uh but yeah i think generalization is mostly through in context learning uh in the sense that okay if we, if i have a similar looking uh trajectory uh in the context then i can i can probably believe that you know i can follow that particular uh example and and i can solve this particular task using that uh but but again like there is one more sort of generalization uh uh which is like generalization to unseen states right uh, uh because like these environments are in, inherently stochastic uh there is some some sort of like noise in the input sequence that you give to the transformer because of the environment stochasticity uh and we kind of observe that as we like scale the model size and also the data size the model kind of uh kind of learns to generalize to even like unseen states and still like get some good enough score for that particular uh task so that is one 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 more generalization 
but we haven't really studied generalization from the skill perspective in the sense that oh what sort of like general skills uh, that the model uh, learned during the training which are like transferable during the test time that makes sense like one question at a time i'm sure there's a lot of science to do here yeah the, the paper said that um, instead of single trajectory sequences like in decision transformer you're using multi-trajectory sequences can, can you say more about that is that uh, do you mean, do you mean uh, what uh, is fed into the context? Yeah, exactly. So I think like decision transformer uses uh, just a single trajectory. Uh, even that too, I think like they they truncate the trajectory and the context window is like very minimal. And because of that, you you can't really like get a lot of in-context learning out of it. Uh, so what we do is we basically basically like uh, stack multiple trajectories. Uh, uh, together uh, and just like pass that as the input to the transformer. So that's that's one innovation, but it's 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 basically it's 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 been done in other papers as well. Uh, but we kind of say that you can't just just like naively stack these 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 uh, trajectories should obey some distribution properties, and that's where the burstiness kind of comes into picture. We only uh, stack trajectories which are from the similar level, so that the model can like look back and uh, learn from the context. So, do the new tasks have a different shaped action space and observation space as well, or is there, or are they different, just different types of actions? What what kind of differences are, are supported here? I think the differences are basically from the observations. Like, uh, if you if you kind of like. Uh, take this example of, uh, you know, Progen, you have like, let's say, Mace task uh, during the training uh, as one of the tasks, but the test task could be like, let's say, Climber. And the Climber, ha climber has like a different uh, set of uh, action sequences that lead to, you know, high reward, high rewarding uh, instances. Uh, so, so you can't just like, you know, uh, zero shot transfer to this new environment uh, because like they differ in terms of uh, the the observations and the sequence of actions that kind of leads to uh, you know high reward and also the transition dynamics is is different uh, for for these two particular games and and also the reward dynamics uh, the reward distribution is is different for these two games. So it, it's it's basically like if you take uh, if you consider these two as MDPs, then the states, the actions, the rewards, and the transition probabilities are are different. If I understand correctly, similar shapes in terms of the size of the action and observation space, but completely different MDPs and in all the other ways that we're used yeah. to. Yeah, does that make sense? Exactly. So so I, I mean, in terms of like dimensions, it's the same like sixty four cross sixty four. RGB image, but uh, it kind of looks different, uh, and also the action sequences that lead to the optimal uh, behavior are different for these, and so are the reward functions and transition uh, distributions. Can you tell us uh, some more about the experience of, of doing this work and like how you came up with the initial vision and how it progressed and how you ended up uh, the paper ended up as it is today and that's a that's an interesting question. So I think like when this work started out, uh, it was more of like a 
exploratory research because I just joined as a resident and I was just exploring a bunch of things. Uh, and I, I really wanted to study this problem of in-context learning uh, just from like curiosity perspective. Uh, and and then, then I thought, uh, okay, I mean, in-context learning in LLMs is like already well studied in the sense that, you know, there are papers from Anthropic uh, and uh, Google, etc., who kind of did like really good work uh, on on uh, for the language at least. Um, then then I kind of identified because like I uh, I I'm from RL background. Uh, I thought maybe it's interesting to study this problem uh, for this particular setting. Uh, so so yeah, I mean it basically started out as a pure exploratory. Uh, curiosity-driven project, and uh, most of the the time is spent on is basically analyzing, uh, you know, how to exactly get that uh, in-context learning ability for for uh, decision-making tasks. Uh, and then, like as I analyzed more, I kind of understood uh, what properties that we need uh, to make this happen. And at the same time, it's it's not an easy problem for RL because like, uh, I think there is a special, uh, there's a section in the paper uh, where I talk about the limitations of the approach, which is basically most uh, mostly like uh, RL centric uh, and not really, you know, supervised learning centric because like these things, these are, these small things can be, you know, easily, I mean, there is, uh, in, at least in supervised learning, the effect of these like very small things are not as huge as in reinforcement learning. For example, the environment stochasticity is like huge problem uh, uh, in in uh, in RL and uh, and uh, and because of that, even though if you if you can do like very good in context learning, you might uh, you know drift away from the context uh, and uh, and never recover from it. And this is like a very RL kind of problem and not really like supervised learning problem. So it was very interesting to like understand uh, all these things uh, and uh, kind of come to the understanding that, you know, it's it's very difficult. It's, it's not really that easy. Uh, and hence it is like uh, kind of not really mature to expect the same uh, results that we uh, that we have like seen in LLM space. Going back to the general idea of in-context learning, I think the first time I encountered the idea was in GPT-3 paper. I remember reading yeah. it the day it came out and being really surprised. And it yeah. seems like a completely different paradigm of learning that we, than we've yeah. ever seen before. Is that is that yeah. the case? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think most of the impressive results that you see today uh, in LLMs is, I think, of course, like scale uh, and uh, the data set size, all these kind of uh, contribute to the emergence of in-context learning. But at the core, uh, transformers do very good in-context learning, and and because of that, you know, we we see all these like impressive results. I guess with language models, LLMs, they can read all the text in the world, or at least all the public text, yeah. and there's no obvious equivalent for RL. What yeah. would that even be? That that's that's actually a good point. Uh, so we we are kind of like data bounded when it comes to reinforcement learning because like we don't really have like a 
internet scale data sets uh, to train you know these uh, these uh, RL models yeah that 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 is like one uh, one limitation but but I guess like you know this is where I kind of uh, think more about how we can use other modalities to do reinforcement learning right so for example uh, there is this like very interesting uh, paper from uh, it's called Voyager uh, and it, I'm not sure if you're uh, if you're aware of this paper it, it is basically like using GPT-4 and uh, kind of like doing this open-ended exploration uh, just through in-context learning and and they are not even like uh, it's not it's not like traditional RL kind of actions. Everything is like kind of uh, embedded in the code. Like it kind of generates a code, and that's that's an action, for example. So everything is kind of uh, converted into language. And since GPTs are like very good at this like processing language data, you can leverage the power of those models and kind of use that for reinforcement learning tasks. This doesn't require any like learning fancy weight updates fine tuning etc it's purely in context learning and that is one paper which was like which I, which i found like really interesting honestly we do, we already have data maybe maybe in a, in a in a different modality we just need to be open about the design choices that we kind of make just like try and use these like super powerful models for doing decision making I guess with the Voyager, I, I do vaguely remember Voyager. I'm just looking it up now. Um, it's kind of depending on the ability to describe a scene in English, yeah. which may yeah. be hard for some RL tasks. I'm trying to imagine like in Ant Maze, how you would describe the position of the legs or like there's just, just the scope of what RL could do could be so far outside of language, I guess. But 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 you're saying as, as, a, as an inspiration for what is possible. Yeah. Yeah. If I understand correctly, your paper doesn't actually do any reinforcement learning. You're solving an RL environment, but actually without using yeah. RL, really, right? Yeah, that's true. And <laughs> although I guess you used RL to train the experts, but that's kind of not doesn't that's not really strictly necessary. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's been this theme that's coming up now and then, um, where people are saying, "Oh, is RL really even needed?" Like in in LLMs, um, you know, some people are moving to to DPO and some more supervised learning approaches. Uh, and there's this kind of meme that people have been kicking around is, is RL, you know, uh, relevant. Mm -hmm. And so your, your paper is another example of getting results in RL environments without actually using RL with all the known complexities and issues around RL. So how do you feel about this? Does this, is this a death knell for RL or how do you see the role of RL changing in future? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so one thing we need to be very careful about is is like you know uh the kind of i mean of course like llms are kind of became mainstream over the past uh, few years and because of that uh you know everything else might look very tiny right uh but but i think like over here we are overlooking the the things that rl can do beyond llms sure i mean llms in llm space i think there is a an RLHF fine-tuning phase, and now, I mean, these days, it, uh, people are replacing that with DPO, etc., uh, etc. Et but beyond beyond LLM space, I think like RL is kind of very powerful, has been proven powerful, let's say, in in drug discovery 
space where you can like use RL methods to discover like new drugs, uh, for example. Um, and uh, I think RL for science as a uh, as a thing is 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 very powerful, but but people are just like uh, kind of too bogged down into like ML uh, like LLM space. And and maybe they are not seeing its potential beyond LLMs, which is like, according to me, it is like very powerful. Uh, maybe not in LLMs, maybe it is, uh, but uh, but in science, for example, it's 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 very good. There are like very good uh, applications for RL for sure. Yeah, I'm not entirely facetious. Like I, I mean, obviously, I started a show and named it um, about reinforcement learning, so I believe RL has a future. However, it's been surprising to me. You know the, how the, the conversation has shifted over the past. I think the the idea in the early days seemed to be that deep RL was going to be you know the one true path to AGI, and and that yeah. seems a little less clear. I mean, it definitely has its role still, but exactly yeah. what its role is going to be, maybe it's a little uh, a little less clear. Yeah, yeah, I, I do agree uh, regarding that, uh, but it depends on like how you even like uh define agi right if it is just like llms uh with the current kind of uh stuff we are doing with rl on llms maybe it is we are already there <laughs> or if it is like beyond llms then there is like a potential application for rl uh over there i guess it, it all i'm trying to say is it depends on it depends exactly on how you define you know agi which is like a more philosophical debate uh than of course jan lacoons and, and and with his cake with the rl being the cherry <laughs> on top i think there's people interpret that cake in very different ways some people have mm -hmm. interpreted oh the cherry is just a small part so it's not important if you listen mm -hmm. to what jan lacoon says he he has said that the cherry is actually the main thing we want and mm -hmm. I think if I understood his argument is that really, we, if we put enough effort into the self-supervised learning part of the cake, the main part of the, the cake, then the cherry can be relatively small, even though it's very important. It can be yeah. a very small uh, amount of compute. Uh, but I think he, originally the cake was about how much data goes in to each step. Yeah. And he was saying you know, that the cherry is small because there's only a small amount of reward signal. So, mm -hmm. and then I think people kind of conflated that to say, oh, maybe the cherry is not important because it's so small. And even he himself has said, we want to minimize the amount of RL we want to do, but yeah. not eliminate it. Because I don't think there's anything yeah. else that takes it, its place. Yeah, definitely. I think like eliminating something is basically you are missing out an opportunity, right? So yeah, cherries are, I love cherries, honestly. <laughs> They're very tasty. And, and I think like it is a very good, very big component. Uh, it will play a, a very big role in the coming future for sure. But it's it's just that, we need to like get like right set of tools to kind of make it happen. So Sharath, I was looking at your past work and you know, outside of this in-context learning paper, can you tell us about some of the other directions that you've worked on in the past uh, briefly? I saw you did, for example, some uh, interesting stuff on generative chemistry and other things. When I was uh, uh, interning, uh, when I was like doing my master's at Mila, I started working on uh, Gflow nets and uh, its applications to drug discovery and, and uh, generative chemistry. Uh, so so I think like that's why I gave you this example of uh, RL being you know very useful in this kind of domains because 
the kind of things I worked on, uh, especially with Gflow Nets, they're like very powerful when it comes to discovering new drugs, uh, diverse drugs, uh, uh, using like RL kind of approach. Can you, and for those of us for, for whom Gflow Nets are still a bit mysterious, I know, um, yeah. I know, uh, Bengio, Professor Bengio is, uh, has invented something really important, and you know I, I've tried to understood it. I, I can't claim that I do. Just briefly for yeah. our audience, what is a Gflow net, and what does it help you do? So imagine, let's say you want a sample from this like complex distribution, which is like which could be intractable, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Gflow nets basically will allow you to do that kind of sampling. So if you kind of imagine a distribution with like multiple modes, then Gflow nets kind of find their way. Uh, to reach to reach that mode and just like pick the sample from there and give it back, and because of this like impressive ability of Gflow nets to cover all the modes in the distribution and give you diverse samples, it is like very interesting application for uh, you know drug discovery because like you in in drug discovery space you want like diverse set of molecules that you want to generate so that you know you can kind of screen them away in the downstream uh, testing process. But yeah, I think like I, I kind of imagine Gflow nets as most mostly from the perspective of sampling. It will allow you to sample from like intractable distributions. And uh, and you also like kind of avoid the the problem of like mixing times in 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 samplings. So if you kind of uh, think about uh, the traditional uh, uh, Marco chain, Marco chain Monte Carlo uh, sampling techniques. The major drawback of that is like if the Marco chain has like very high mixing time, it it will take for a while to like kind of sample from the true true distribution. Uh, but Gflown is kind of avoid that problem, uh, uh, and uh, you can just like basically uh, sample uh, from these intractable distributions. Uh, get the diverse, get like diverse samples, uh, and uh, use that in your downstream tasks. That's how that's how I think of Gflow nets. I'm not an expert of uh, Gflow nets, but uh, I think thinking from this perspective kind of helped me, uh, you know, approach the, the kind of uh, problems that I've been solving. In the so, past. did you use them in conjunction with RL? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it has some neat connections with RL because of the objective function. So what it does is basically, so let me give you this this example, right? So imagine a graphical model, uh, which has like one uh, one source uh, state, and uh, and there are like a couple of leaf uh, nodes, you can call them as sync states, right? And imagine like water, I think this is the classical example which uh, even like Benjio gives uh, in his talks. It's basically imagine like water is flowing uh, from this like source state to all the corresponding states and it will reach the sync states. And all these like sync states have uh, certain like reward associated with it. Uh, and, and, and if you look, kind of look at the objective function, it is basically at every uh, node or, or at every conjunction, uh, you want to make sure that whatever is the inflow to that particular node is equal to the outflow. And uh, if you look at the objective function, this kind of looks very similar to the TD objective. 
so that's why it is like it has some connections to reinforcement learning. Uh, but one one very impressive thing about GPLonets, which is like uh, which which maybe you can see that as a drawback in RL is basically uh, the diversity aspect, right? So you won't always uh, end up with a policy which which uh, gives you maximum return. Uh, you kind of end up with a policy which kind of uh, uh, understands the distribution of the reward and uh, kind of reach all the modes of the reward distribution. Not just like, like one peak, which is like a max, arg max. I see. So it's trying to match the whole distribution with high fidelity. Yeah. I would say, like, for example, I tried using VAE to get samples mm. from for a RL environment. And uh, as you know, VAE is a very primitive way to yeah. get to match. And so obviously it wasn't matching very well. So this is, and on the other, on the I guess on the other side, GANs and diffusion models are trying to get excellent samples, yeah. uh, but maybe in the case of GANs at least, not really matching the distribution, even though the sam individual yeah. samples are high quality. So is GFlow nets yeah. kind of somewhere in between or? Yeah, I think like uh, I would not compare with VAEs and uh, and GANs because like GFlow nets kind of at least right now they are uh, they operate uh, when you have like discrete state spaces. So that's why you know you see applications of GFlow net in drug discovery because like mole molecules are kind of discrete. You know. Oh, it's uh, always discrete. So, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Because discrete is hard in in many ways, right? Yeah, yeah, that is that is true. Uh, if you think of like state spaces in uh, like in like molecules and stuff, it's it's basically in uh, in the orders of like ten to the power nine or something. Uh, and uh, in order to like explore that space and sample high uh, high rewarding diverse molecules, it's it's like very it's it, it's interactable. That's why I say like you can use GFlow nets to sample from interactable distributions, and these samples are often diverse. Any other things in the world of RL that you find quite interesting these days uh, outside of your own own work? Again, uh, I want to go back to GFlow nets and and uh, and I want to say that they are actually powerful because uh, I saw this recent paper again from uh, from Joshua's group uh, where they kind of use uh, GFlow net training objective instead of PP objective for for training uh, for like fine-tuning uh, the large language models. And and the interesting thing about yeah, doing this sort of thing is basically you can you can do very interesting tasks in the sense in the sense that uh, you can condition the the uh, language model uh, on uh, some infilling tasks. By that what I mean is you can basically uh, you know prompt the model with the start of the story and let's say you're doing doing like a story generation task, right? You kind of know the beginning of the story and also end of the story, and you want the LLM to kind of generate diverse set of uh, uh, kind of in-between stories. Uh, and uh, and you can use like GFlow nets to actually do these sort of like infilling tasks. Uh, and they kind of show that if you use GFlow net training objective and fine-tune, uh, you kind of end up with like diverse set of stories for the same start state and the end state. Uh, and uh, I, I find that re really interesting, uh, honestly. 
so so i think like they are slowly making their way to uh to the llm space uh and uh i'm really excited to like see what they're doing next me too i'm very bullish on benjo's ideas <laughs> yeah thank you for for sharing that insight with us um is there anything else that you want to share with the audience today uh while you're here you know maybe if you don't know gflow nets you should go ahead and read and if you haven't read my 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 paper on in context learning please read that paper and uh you know reach out to me on twitter i'm kind of active over there or you can email me if you have any questions we will link to your paper uh as well as other resources from this from this chat in in the episode uh, show notes so um this has been this has been so interesting for me uh, I want to thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sharath Chandra Raparthi, for, for joining us today and sharing your insight with TalkRL audience. Thank you so much.